Hi everybody. Uh, for this series of lectures, we're going to take a look at North America. The two countries um, th that are included include uh, would be the United States and Canada, uh, which are the two countries that are generally considered to comprise North America. Uh, in some cases, you'll see Central America included uh, with North America, or I should say probably more specifically Mexico included uh, with North America. But uh, from a cultural standpoint, I really don't think uh, Mexico should be included from in North America. So we'll uh, look at Mexico when we look at uh, Latin America. Obviously, North America has been impacted by globalization, uh, and much of the rest of the world has also been been impacted by um, globalization through uh, the spread of uh, North American products, uh, culture, and so forth. And we'll so we'll be taking a close look at globalization both has, as it has impacted North America and as North America has impacted much of the rest of the world. Actually, much of the rest of the course is going to take a look at uh, the impacts of globalization on other parts of the world. Uh, <clears throat> in North America, we certainly have widespread uh, abundance and affluence, uh, but this is really, um, it would really be uh, false uh, to to uh, think that everybody has uh, shared in this abundance and affluence, uh, because clearly we have persisting disparities in income, uh, as well as the quality of life. Uh, we also have persisting uh, disparities in political power and so forth, and all that has to do with the levels of wealth and so forth of different groups of people. North America's unique cultural character and heritage is detailed in this in this uh, series of lectures. Um, in North America, we like to stress our colonial and immigrant heritage, um, and that's certainly stronger in, in, in certain parts of the country than it is in other parts of the country. Uh, clearly, in many parts of the country, um, uh, particularly in the southern part of the country, uh, immigration is really kind of frowned upon. Um, but in other parts of the uh, United States, particularly in the Northeast and the West and so forth, uh, immigrants are, are accepted uh, fairly easily into American society or the U.S. society. So upon completing this chapter, you should become familiar with the environmental, cultural, political, and economic similarities and differences in North America. Some of the key concepts that we'll be discussing uh, include urban structural models, urban processes, cultural identities, and assimilation. And here's a list of some of those um, key concepts, as you can see. Uh, Post-industrial economy is one of the concepts that we'll be talking about. Acid rain, sustainable agriculture, boreal forest, prairie, tundra. These, these are all uh, vegetation regions within North America. Uh, cap and trade energy policy, which is a big uh, controversy, uh, particularly in the United States. Uh, megaopolis, non-metropolitan growth, urban decentralization, concentric zone model versus the urban realm model. These are some of the stru urban structural models that I had mentioned earlier. Gentrification and new urbanism. These are other uh, urban kinds of uh, concepts that we'll be talking about. Cultural assimilation, NAFTA or the North American Free Trade uh, Association, federalism, and sectoral transformation. So these are some of the very important concepts that you should get out of the chapter and out of the lectures as, uh, as we uh, go through uh, looking at North America. So as I mentioned, as we set the boundaries for this, uh, this uh, region, 
North America has traditionally uh, been defined as including the United States and Canada. North America has uh, significantly affected, has been significantly affected uh, by globalization, um, particularly in the economic realm, but also uh, within the cultural realm, uh, as we have accepted more and more uh, immigrants from across the globe into the United States and Canada, quite frankly. Um, and that makes North America uh, to be extremely culturally diverse. And uh, North America is also a very uh, resource-rich resource rich region, although in some cases, some of those resources are, are have been uh, significantly depleted. North America is highly urbanized and has one of the world's highest rates of resource consumption. And of course, that resource consumption has to do with the level of wealth in the United States. and, and uh, and also the fact that the United States is a consumer society. Um, the region exemplifies what we sometimes refer to as a post-industrial economy. Uh, and what we mean by post-industrial economy is that um, significant, a significant portion of the labor force is no longer employed in manufacturing. As a matter of fact, uh, manufacturing as a proportion of the uh, all the workers in the labor force has declined uh, down to somewhere around 15% currently. Uh, much of the workforce in North America is employed in what we refer to as the service sector of the economy. And so uh, many people uh, refer to the uh, region's economy as being the post-industrial economy. The term North America itself is problematic. Uh, the continent of North America includes Mexico and Central America, as I mentioned before, and often the Caribbean. Culturally, as I uh, mentioned earlier, uh, the, uh, culturally, however, the political border between the United States and Mexico has been used to differentiate the region. Uh, North America reflects significant economic disparities, and we can really see this in our cities. Um, if you think Many of the students taking this course are from the New York City area, uh, and it's really exemplified in New York City, where you can have some of the richest people in the world living in relatively close proximity uh, to some of the very poorest people in the United States. We can also look at things like uh, our Native American uh, reservations in the United States that also uh, have significant uh, issues with poverty uh, and other social issues as well. North America has a rich ethnic and cultural heritage, and much of that is uh, due to uh, the fact that uh, uh, North America is really made up of, uh, it's really a society of immigrants. Um, beginning back in the, uh, in the 16th, uh, 15th, century, uh, 15th century and continuing up to the present time, uh, North America takes in uh, a significant number of immigrants every year. In the United States, for example, we take in close to a million immigrants every year. And those are um, what we would refer to as documented immigrants. And obviously, we also have issues with undocumented immigrants in the United States also. So as you can see, we're also a highly mobile society. We move around a lot. We uh, migrate across the country a lot. We also use, uh, obviously, automobiles to get uh, pretty much everywhere in the United States. Uh, industrialization, as I mentioned, has declined somewhat, but we uh, still produce uh, a fair amount of goods in the United States, and we also are highly urbanized, as I mentioned before. Over the last um, 
five, six, or seven, maybe even seven years, the United States and Canada has experienced a significant economic downturn uh, that has left many people unemployed. Uh, and of course, this is not only um, in the United States and Canada, but is also uh, found around the globe. So this is a map of North America, and I just want to talk a little bit about some of the different regions of North America. Uh, we'll talk more in detail about this uh, a little bit later, but one of the things that you should uh, kind of think about as we're going through uh, looking at North America is that the original European settlement of North America was along the East Coast here. And the reason for that, of course, is because um, many, you know, that uh, migration was mostly from Europe, and obviously this would be the closest point to Europe. It would be the east coast of the United States and Canada. And also this is an area uh, that is relatively flat, particularly right along the coastal area, and so this was a good place for the early Europeans to settle. They were actually impeded uh, or uh, prevented from moving far inland uh, until they actually built uh, trails and roads and so through so forth through the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, and then that, that allowed the expansion into the middle part of, the, of uh, North America. Uh, <clears throat> eventually a canal was built, the Erie Canal was built across New York, and that allowed movement from New York City up the Hudson River, across the Erie Canal to Buffalo and into the Great Lakes. And that contributed to, once again, to movement into the central part of the country and uh, was also one of the reasons for the very rapid growth of Chicago. So North, uh, so Europeans continued to move um, westward. Okay, so that's uh, important to understand. Move westward. And in many cases, they actually skipped the uh, Great Plains of the United States because they saw that um, in many places, particularly as they moved further west into some of the drier areas of the Great Plains, they really saw the Great Plains as almost like a desert because there were no trees. And you need to remember that the Europeans were coming from areas uh, in Europe that had lots of trees. And for the Europeans, lots of trees signified um, good soils for doing agriculture. So they actually skipped over some of the richest soils in North America, both in the United States and Canada in the Great Plains, uh, because there were no trees in these areas. It was just grassland. And then we come to another major um, physical feature in North America, which would be the Rocky Mountains. Um, and then we come into the basin area here uh, around Salt Lake and in between the Rocky Mountains and the coastal ranges and the Sierra Nevada Mountains in California and then eventually obviously to the West Coast. So North America's, uh, as you can see, North America's physical, physical setting has, and it really has been highly modified uh, by humans. Um, so obviously uh, along the East Coast first with agriculture and then as we spread into other parts of the country, uh, agriculture. And more recently, obviously with urbanization, uh, the search for resources, um, to contrib that contributed to the rapid industrialization has really transformed North America's landforms, its soils, its vegetation, and its climate, quite frankly. So as I mentioned, the rival Europe Europeans impacted the region's flora and fauna. New species such as wheat, cattle, and horses were introduced uh, into the area. The forest cover, particularly in the, along the East Coast, uh, was removed and grasslands were converted into farmland uh, as people continued to move into the West. 
Water consumption is high in North America. Um, so many aquifers, such as the Ogallala Aquifer, are being depleted. And the Ogallala Aquifer actually is a big underground water. Uh, you could think of it as a big underground lake, I guess. might be an interesting way to think about it. Uh, it's really what we call fossil water. So it was deposited um, through uh, uh, the water uh, actually leaching down through the soil and so forth into various caverns and things underground. And the Ogallala Aquifer actually extends from uh, northern Texas the whole way up through the Great Plains. And um, over the last um, um, several decades, many decades, quite frankly, uh, the Ogallala, Ogallala, I'm sorry, aquifer has uh, been uh, used as a uh, source for irrigation water in the Great Plains. And uh, because the water isn't being replaced as rapidly as it's been being used, uh, there's a fear that the Ogallala aquifer could actually dry up and then there would be no water for irrigation in the Great Plains. Water quality in North America is also um, an issue. Uh, and this is despite the introduction of environmental laws and guidelines many North uh, that were introduced, uh, particularly in the late 1960s and the 1970s. Uh, many North Americans are exposed to various waterborne pollutants. Um, and we've had uh, significant issues not only with waterborne uh, uh, diseases and things like that, but also disasters such as the oil spill uh, that result from the explosion on the Deepwater Horizon oil rig uh, that continue to uh, uh, pose environmental hazards. And now, for those of you not familiar with the Deepwater Horizon oil rig explosion, that was in the Gulf of Mexico and polluted uh, the beaches and so forth along the Gulf of Mexico. Many of the rivers in North America are used for transportation, and this creates uh, environmental issues as well because many of the barges and so forth leak oil, leak gasoline into the rivers and things like that. We also use rivers and streams in North America uh, to dump our uh, sewage, our human waste, and other sorts of waste into the rivers. Now, uh, as I mentioned, uh, we've passed you know, some pretty strict uh, environmental regulations of, about dumping raw sewage and and garbage and things like that into into our rivers and streams, but it still does occur. So here in Binghamton, uh, during the last flood that we had here in 2010, I believe it was, um, significant flood, our, um, it's either 2010 or 2011, I can't remember exactly, uh, the sewage disposal plant that uh, is supposed to clean our sewage before it's dumped into the rivers uh, was flooded. And what that meant was for a time, uh, raw sewage was being dumped uh, directly into the Susquehanna River. So we still have some real problems uh, with sewage, uh, dumping uh, sewage into our uh, rivers and streams. Uh, hurricane, hurricane Katrina uh, in 2005, uh, we're still rebuilding uh, the city of New Orleans from, uh, from that uh, disaster. Um, so we have, as you can see, it was a very large and powerful storm. It was a, uh, uh, I believe it was a Category 5 hurricane that hit along the Gulf Coast. And let me just go back to the map. So we're talking about this area here, the Gulf of Mexico here. We're talking about the Gulf Court Coast. And New Orleans obviously was uh, dramatically impacted by that um, hurricane, as was much of the rest of the Gulf Coast um, 
in the southern part of the United States. So as you can see, um, who are the people that are impacted uh, by these storms? Well, in most cases, uh, they are the, uh, the poor people uh, uh, because they live in the most vulnerable areas of the city. Um, so New Orleans obviously has a extensive, extensively built in, uh, environment, urban environment. Um, uh, New Orleans uh, lies very close to sea level. And actually, some parts of the city are actually below sea level. So when the storms blow, the uh, when the storm surge hits, that is the blowing of water off the Gulf of Mexico, it backs up the rivers and it floods. And the, not only do we get flooding from the Gulf of Mexico, but the rivers themselves overflow the banks. Now, in the case of New Orleans, they had pumps to, um, to pump out the water. Uh, in case of flooding, but those pumps failed because the pumps themselves, the, the engines for the pumps uh, were flooded. So it's been a very slow recovery in, uh, in New Orleans. North America's fisheries are, are also being threatened from overfishing uh, and of course the over environmental degradation. So we talked about the problems in the Gulf of Mexico, and I'll go back to our map again, um, with the oil spill. And from that oil spill, a lot of the fish uh, in this, and uh, uh, were killed. Uh, so the fishing industry, the shrimp industry, were really devastated by the oil spill. Off the coast of uh, North America, up in this area, the east coast of North America, particularly off the coast of, uh, of Canada, we have an area called the Grand Banks. And this used to be a, um, a, a um, resource for catching a variety of different fish. And uh, that the Grand Banks have actually been overfished to the point that the fish almost were uh, eliminated, from, eliminated from that area. And the government of Canada took action to prevent fishing in the Grand Banks until the fish were able to restore, uh, till the fish population was able to restore itself. So this uh, map just shows you some of the problems that we have in North America with uh, the variety of different environmental uh, problems that we have. Uh, obviously, acid rain is also a problem in North America. You can see much of that is along the eastern part of, of North America, particularly east of the Mississippi River, because many, many of the coal-fired power plants are located in the Midwest. And in North America, we have prevailing winds that blow from the west to the east, and they bring those pollutants from the Midwest to uh, the East Coast. So um, Acid rain uh, really is uh, when uh, the sulfur and the in the uh, pollutants mixes with uh, the moisture in the air and then falls as either rain or snow or in some cases even dew on the grass will have uh, is also uh, considered to be acid precipitation. So and then we have uh, so acid rain is a big problem, particularly along the east coast. Uh, I mentioned the Gulf oil spill of 2010 uh, became North America's greatest environmental disaster, uh, and that has created uh, coastal pollution, as you can see. We also have coastal pollution along the east coast here, as well as along the west coast. Uh, but a lot of dumping of um, toxic materials in, in this area has created significant um, uh, coastal pollution along the East Coast and the Gulf Coast of the United States. 
Los Angeles air quality, uh, is, uh, well, actually Los Angeles is famous for its poor air quality because of the number of automobiles uh, that uh, uh, in this area and people get around uh, by their automobiles and they uh, create the pollution that gets up into the air, uh, uh, atmosphere. And uh, Los Angeles itself, its topography, it kind of sits in a bowl. And so it's very difficult for those po uh, pollutants to actually be blown uh, away from the area. So those pollutants just kind of hang over top of uh, Los Angeles. Uh, I mentioned the o Ogallala Aquifer, and so this just points to the Ogallala Aquifer. As I mentioned, it extends from Texas up through the Great Plains, uh, and there's a fear of depletion there. Uh, dam removals, removing uh, dams along uh, selected lowland streams of the Pacific Northwest should improve the area's habitat for spawning ha uh, salmon. So what has happened is in some cases um, the salmon, uh, they uh, travel upriver uh, to spawn or to lay their eggs. And, and a lot of the dams, they actually have built ladders for the, uh, uh, for the salmon to be able to go around the dams and continue their journey upstream. But in some cases, that hasn't, I mean, in a lot of cases, that hasn't always occurred. So the salmon have a very difficult time uh, getting upstream to uh, lay their eggs. And then you can see we have major hazardous waste sites, uh, particularly along the East Coast, the eastern part of the United States, um, uh, that create uh, toxic, uh, pro toxic environmental problems for uh, the large cities along the East Coast, and so forth. So we have some really significant uh, environmental issues in North America uh, that many of our politicians uh, refuse to address. So human environmental interaction, the costs of human uh, uh, human modification. And so we know that uh, we've had lots of different modifications. So uh, we've altered the atmosphere. North Americans have modified both the local and regional climates, the chemical composition of the Earth's atmosphere has also been affected by urban industrial growth in North America, and we can see that with the example of acid rain. North America's urban industrial growth has contributed to the transnational environmental problems such as acid rain, as I mentioned. Uh, when we talk about the price of affluence, globalization has provided many benefits, but not without significant cost. Energy consumption remains extremely high in North America, leading to environmental and economic costs. So, as I mentioned, uh, the coal-fired power plants in North America uh, create significant pollution problems. Environmental initiatives have addressed local and regional problems, but clearly uh, not to the point where they have reduced uh, national or uh, international or continental problems, if you want to think of it in that sense. There is increasing support to address these problems by some politicians, and I say some politicians, but certainly not all, and certainly not as, uh, uh, enough to be able to um, uh, create uh, substantial changes uh, in environmental policy in North America. Sustainable agriculture uh, is, uh, is an interesting question in North America uh, because um, North America, North American agriculture is, is, very, is really highly productive. Um, but it's highly productive because of the fact that we use high-yielding seeds, we use lots of fertilizers, we use lots of, uh, lots of herbicides and pesticides and so forth uh, on the soil. And of course, these are all 
um, chemicals, right? They're all petrochemicals, actually. Uh, most people don't realize that uh, that a lot of our uh, fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides are actually made from petroleum. Uh, so they're petrochemical, uh, what we call petrochemicals. And we put large amounts of these on our soil, and this contributes to the pollution of the groundwater and so forth. We've actually poisoned, in some cases, actually poisoned the groundwater because there's so many chemicals uh, that have leached down through the soils and uh, pollute the groundwater. And they also actually contribute to uh, the degradation of the soils uh, because in many cases, uh, uh, after using lots of chemicals on the soils, the, the soils actually become uh, less productive. So uh, sustainable agriculture is a possible. Um, organic farming principles limit use chemicals and integrated plant and plant of uh, the integrated planting of crops and livestock management. It's becoming increasingly popular, but not uh, to the extent where it's going to make a significant difference. At least not at this point. Uh, hopefully, at some point it will. The development of renewable energy sources such as hydroelectric, solar, wind, geothermal power has been encouraged. But once again, um, this is a problem that, um, you know, it's a, it's a political issue, really, in North America. And as long as the politicians are influenced by the, uh, by the current uh, producers of uh, energy and so forth, uh, I, I don't see a whole lot of change occurring and uh, being, being and using more solar, wind, or geothermal power in the United States. Um, so unfortunately, fossil fuels, uh, the burning of coal in particular, and of course the burning of gasoline and so forth, and fuel oil, uh, is going to continue to dominate the energy consumption in the United States. Uh, so as we took a look at... Uh, North America's, and, and actually, I should uh, before I, I go on to look at this, what this is uh, this photograph here is the Gulf oil spill, so you can get a sense of what that looked like, and you can understand how uh, a, a situation like this will, um, you know, uh, hurt or uh, you know, devastate the fishing industry along the Gulf Coast. Uh, ecosystems have been altered. Uh, and so forth along the Gulf Coast, uh, birds and, and so forth have lost their nesting sites and so forth. And so we need a real system of resource management in the United States. Uh, but once again, because of the political situation in North America, that's going to be very difficult to bring about. So we have a very diverse uh, physical setting in North America. And I tried to show you in the, in the earlier map some of that. Um, diverse physical settings. So North America's landscape is dominated by interior lowlands. Those are the mount or those are the lowlands between the Appalachian Mountains in the east and the Rocky Mountains in the west. Um, as a, and, and obviously um, we have the coastal plains that dominate along the east coast of the United States. And this is the Chesapeake Bay and that would be part of those uh, that east coast um, lowland coastal lowlands along the east coast, as you can see. So the Chesapeake Bay, just to give you an example, has been uh, really impacted by uh, the use of uh, chemical fertilizers and pesticides uh, that actually uh, float down the, uh, the uh, enter into the Chesapeake Bay through the Susquehanna River. Now, those of us who 
are uh, live in uh, along the eastern part of the United States are very familiar with the Susquehanna River. The Susquehanna River actually has its uh, source in New York State, and so all the chemicals and fertilizers and so forth that are put onto the soil in New York State and then down through Pennsylvania, uh, event, they leach down through the uh, uh, soil, down into the green, uh, groundwater, eventually find themselves, uh, are found in the streams and rivers that feed into the Susquehanna River, and then eventually those, petro, uh, those chemicals float into the Chesapeake Bay. And they've been responsible for killing large numbers of fish. They've been responsible for uh, uh, reducing the amount of oxygen in the water in the Chesapeake Bay, increasing the amount of nitrogen in the, in the Chesapeake Bay, and so forth. So it's been a real problem for the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, and it's really coming from elsewhere. So it gives you an indication how the environmental problems can be created in one part of the region and actually impact another part of the region. So the Atlantic coastline is composed of um, river valleys, drowned river valleys, actually, bays, swamps, and barrier islands. And again, the Chesapeake Bay would be uh, an example of that. The Piedmont or, and the Appalachian Highlands are just to the west. Um, and then we have the interior highlands, the Ozark Mountains and the Wachita uh, Plateau dominate the eastern interior. The interior of North America is dominated by the Great Plains. Uh, glac glacial forces shaped much of this region uh, early in geological history. Western North America's topography is significantly different from the eastern North America. This region is characterized by mountain building processes. We have alpine glaciation and erosion processes. Key features in this region include the Rocky Mountain, Alaska's Brooks Range, the Colorado Plateau, Plateau and Nevada's basin and range uh, landscape that I pointed out in an earlier map. So this is Glacier uh, National Park, um, as you can see uh, in this image. And so this is an example of a highland mountain uh, area. Now, because of global warming, uh, unfortunately, many of the glaciers in this park are disappearing. And it's actually estimated by about 2020, 2030, probably closer to 2030, that all the glaciers in Glacier National Park will have actually melted away and there will be no glaciers in Glacier National Park. So I don't know what we'll call Glacier National Park after all the glaciers are gone. I guess we'll call it um, Glaciers Have Disappeared National Park or something along those lines. But um, it's, it's a, you know, uh, a uh, fact of uh, global warming or maybe we should say global climate change and not global warming. Because along with global climate change, uh, we'll have some places that actually get cooler and some places that will get warmer, um, you know, based on uh, their location and so forth. North America's western border includes the coast ranges of Washington, Oregon, California. And uh, I pointed those out on the earlier map. These are interspersed with the lowlands of Puget Sound in Washington, the Willamette Valley in Oregon, and the Central Valley of California. So the region's uh, size, its latitudinal range, that's from north to south, uh, and varied terrains contribute to diversity in climate and vegetation patterns. In the core continent, continental interior, as you can see, we had the boreal forests and the high latitudes and the high mountains in the Rocky Mountains and so forth. We actually have tundra. 
and in the drier continental climates we have a prairie type uh, vegetation. Uh, environments south of the Great Lakes are characterized by longer growing seasons and deciduous or broadleaf forests. This will be our uh, uh, south of the Great Lakes. Environments north of the Great Lakes are dominated by coniferous uh, forests um, or the boreal forests. And I'm sure you all know the difference between the, the broadleaf forests or the trees that lose their leaves in the wintertime or in the fall and in the winter. And the coniferous forests are the um, cone-bearing or evergreen uh, trees. Uh, the far north is characterized by tundra. So once we get way north in uh, North America, up near the Arctic, we have tundra, but also we'll have tundra in the highlands of the area. A mixture of low uh, a tundra, as you know, is a mixture of low shrubs close to the ground, grasses, and in some cases, um, mosses and, and things like that, Mice, mosses, lichens, and so forth. Much of the interior of North America is dominated by drier continental climates. The soils of this region are fertile and, and originally supported prairie vegetation. Uh, a marine west coast climate dominates the western coastal region north of San Francisco and the southwest coastal region, regions are dominated by the Mediterranean climate. So this is the climate map of North America. And so let's point out some of these climates that we we're talking about and maybe even expand a bit. So, and uh, as you can see, we have, uh, let's, let's uh, go through from east to west. And you, as you can see along much of the east coast, we have uh, what are called sea climates. So uh, these are our mid-Atlantic climates. Uh, the CFA climate that's uh, dominant here in the southeastern part of the United States is a humid subtropical climate without a dry season and hot summers. So in much of this area, um, we have uh, very hot summers, although this summer in particular has been relatively cool here. Uh, there's no particular dry season, so this region receives precipitation year-round, although this uh, past summer has been extraordinarily wet in this area. Um, they've had way above average rainfall uh, this particular summer in this area. So um, this is our CFA climate. And you can see this even extends the whole way west uh, to uh, pretty much the central part of, of Texas. So a lot of the precipitation that this region receives actually comes in off the Gulf, uh, the Gulf of Mexico up in this area, and of course off the Atlantic as well. So you can see this area is really surrounded uh, by water, which contributes to the wetness. And also, uh, because it is surrounded by um, all this water, its temperature, temperatures are moderated, uh, particularly during the water, uh, winter time. Okay, so, and then as you can see along the, uh, 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 as we move further north, then we come into the continental mid-latitude uh, mid mid climates. And so these are uh, climates that are, uh, the DFA is humid continental. We have a warm summer. We get precipitation year-round, a warm summer. Uh, but as you continue to move forward, uh, more northward, uh, the winters become colder, okay? So we're located right here in Binghamton, New York, okay? And so you can see we fall into this DFA climate, the humid continental with a warm summer. Although for us, this summer, uh, has been a little bit cooler than normal, I would say. 
And then as we move forward more northward, you can see we come into the BF, DFB climates, and these are humid continental with a cool summer. Okay, so cooler summers here, and usually up in this area, very cold winters. Okay, we're talking about places like Quebec and uh, places like that. So uh, Montreal, Quebec City, uh, even up into Toronto and places like that, although Toronto is a little bit modified by the Great Lakes. But much of this region up here has very cold winters and cool summers. Still precipitation year-round. And then as we move farther north, we come into the subarctic area. So these areas would actually have very cool summers for the most part and very, very cold winters. And then we come up into the Arctic area that experiences the tundra uh, type of climate. So uh, from, this, from this line northward, we have tundra. So we have very few trees, if any trees, that'll grow. This is the area of lichens and mosses and very low-lying shrubs and things like that. The DFB and the DFC climates are going to have our coniferous forests. Right down in this area where we're located here in Binghamton, we have like a combination of deciduous and, and uh, coniferous forests in this area. And as we come further southward, obviously we're going to have um, strictly coniferous, or I'm sorry, uh, deciduous forests. So as we move further westward in North America, you can see we come into our B climates, and these are our dry climates. A good uh, way to think about this, at about 100 degrees uh, west uh, longitude, um, we will start to, this. that's usually considered the dividing line. So that would be right about in this area, the dividing line between the dry climates to the west and the moisture climates to the east. So you can see we have our B climates here. Uh, just before we get in, these would be the Great Plains of North America. Uh, remember, as I said, the, uh, many of the uh, early uh, settlers that were traveling westward thought this was kind of like a desert area. Okay, so we have uh, mid-latitude steppe area in here. And then actually down in here, we have a, a desert area, subtropical, subtropical desert area. And much of this area here would be highland climates. Okay, so uh, microclimates, uh, some areas, particularly in the valleys, will be warmer than the hilltops and, or mountaintops. And mountaintops is where you'd find your tundra landscape and so forth. Okay, so we move to the west coast. You can see, we uh, again, we come into our uh, marine west coast climate up in this area. So uh, significant rainfall, cloudy, uh, uh, most, uh, a lot of days are very cloudy and so forth as moisture comes in off the west coast or off the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and as it hits the mountains here, we have the coastal ranges right in here, um, that, uh, those, that moisture coming in off the Pacific Ocean will rise and it will fall depending on the season, either as rainfall or snowfall. And then as that um, air continues over the mountains, the coastal ranges, and as it sinks, it, will, it, uh, it becomes drier and warmer. And actually to the west of these mountains, it's very, it's very much desert-like. And you can clearly see that here in Washington State, even in Oregon, and even up into uh, Alberta in Canada. So much of this area is considered to be uh, desert-like, and it's largely because uh, the moisture coming off the Pacific doesn't reach this area. 
down in, in this area, in California in particular, we have um, what's referred to as a Mediterranean climate. So we have a very dry summer in this area, uh, very little rainfall in the summer, uh, very hot in the summer, particularly in some of the interior areas. Uh, this would be the Central Valley of California, as you can see. And what's interesting about the Central Valley of California is one of the richest agricultural areas in the United States. Uh, actually, many of us on the East Coast during the wintertime will get our fruits and vegetables from the Central Valley of California, as well as from Florida. But as you can see from the climate map, this area is really considered to be very much a desert. And the only way they're able to do agriculture in this area is through irrigation. So the hope is during the wet season, during the wintertime, uh, when uh, this area receives its uh, rainfall and then in the uh, mountainous areas receives lots of snowfall, that that water uh, will be stored up and then used for irrigation water. They actually have uh, aqueducts that they bring the water from Northern California down into the Central Valley and even into the Imperial Valley of California down in this area to use as agriculture to grow crops and so forth. And then again, you can see, so this would be the Imperial Valley down in here, this BSA climate. And then one area that we should also point out is the tropical wet climate, which is on the very southern tip of the Florida Peninsula down in this area. So that gives us an indication of the physical geography uh, of the region and the climate. And so we have some uh, photographs here of global warming. And as I mentioned, um, the United States is going to be impacted pretty significantly by global warming. It'll be interesting to see how this all plays out uh, in the future. Um, so uh, accelerated uh, rates of human uh, uh, influence climate change. So sea levels are going to rise. And particularly along the east coast of the United States, we could see some pretty significant problems. Uh, I know many of the students that go to Binghamton University are from Long Island. And I always, I, I always uh, um, make a joke with those students that you know, Long Island is going to disappear because Long Island is very uh, low to sea level. It's very close to sea level. And as sea levels rise, it's very possible that Long Island could be, could actually disappear, could be uh, underwater. And even the lower parts of Manhattan uh, that are very low to sea level, and they could also disappear. And many of the large cities uh, along the east coast of the United States could face significant problems from sea level rise. We also have coastal erosion, and that's uh, been really evident in some of the storms that we've seen, particularly some of the hurricanes and some of the northeastern storms that have come up along the Atlantic coast have created significant problems with coastal erosion. And up to this point, uh, state and federal governments seem to have been willing to pay the huge sums of money to replace the beaches and so forth along the coast. Um, if those storms become more numerous and happen more frequently, it'll be interesting to see if we'll be if we'll continue to be willing to pay taxes to continue to rebuild this coast. And I mentioned the glacial retreat, particularly in, in places like Glacier National Park, the Rocky Mountains, and so forth, as those glaciers are shrinking. So the federal response um, to some of these problems. Um, uh, the, in the United States, federal policies have been enacted uh, to, uh, some have been enacted, I should say it that way. Um, to uh, in response to global climate change. Uh, we certainly could do much more in the United States. Um, we have some politicians who really 
feel that if um, we put more uh, regulations on businesses and different industries and what they can pollute and things like, or how much they can pollute and so forth, it will destroy our economy. Um, so, you know, one of the questions that we living in North America have to kind of ask ourselves is, first of all, is global climate change real? Uh, I think we can see that it is real because our climate has been changing for the last several decades, if not the last uh, century and a half in North America, as well as much across the globe. So uh, if we can agree that global climate change is real, then we have to ask ourselves, is global climate change human-induced? Or is this, are, are we just experiencing um, you know, uh, a cycle that our climate goes through, uh, you know, periodically every few thousand years and things like that. Um, so, you know, those are questions. If it is human-induced, can we take steps to reduce, should we be taking steps to reduce the amount of pollution that we put into the atmosphere, into our lakes and streams and rivers and those sorts of things? Well, um, you know, that's a decision that individuals have to make. Uh, but our politicians, many of our politicians, uh, don't even seem to be willing to face the fact that global climate change is actually occurring. Uh, so if we have to convince them of that first, and then maybe we can convince them to set, take some sorts of actions to improve our, um, our uh, uh, improve uh, or reduce the amounts of pollutants that we put into the air. And of course, lots of people, you know, lots of politicians want to make this a, you know, kind of a, a market question, you know, free market question, you know, um, using something called a cap and trade energy policy in which overall carbon emissions would be limited or capped with any system that would allow polluters to buy and sell carbon credits in an emission trading marketplace. This might reduce overall levels of emissions. Uh, and in, again, that may not. So um, federal response, I would say, has been relatively poor in, in uh, this area. So that completes the first uh, lecture on North America. When we come back, we'll take a look at the population geography uh, and patterns, and we'll be taking a look at things like the uneven distribution of population and migration uh, into and within the United States and Canada.